Hey, welcome to the Afikra podcast. This episode is another one in our Matbakh series. Our special guest is Palestinian chef and restaurateur Fadi Qatan. We talk about Palestine, we talk about how food has changed and how it might still be changing. And I hope you enjoy it. There's a lot of fun. You should know that this is an edited down version. The full uncut version of this conversation is on our YouTube page. So make sure that you go to YouTube to subscribe, comment, do all that good stuff. If you feel like attending these events, you can go to hafikra.com slash RSVP. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mike Dimhenna. I'm going to be interviewing and hosting this evening's talk. Our special guest is Fadi Qatan, Franco-Palestinian chef and hotelier, um, has become the voice of modern Palestinian cuisine. When Fadi started his Fauda restaurant in 2016, he created a cuisine honoring Palestine's best produce with a modern twist, raising the challenge of rendering this traditional kitchen into a gourmet dining experience. Fadi, thank you for joining us and welcome to Africa. Thank you, Mickey, and thank you for hosting me. And I, I think Africa. I mean, you've done a great thing to present Africa scholastically, but I love Africa. So you know, guys, just follow Africa. When you have any curiosity about the Arab world, my go-to address is Africa usually. Thank uh, you so, so I'm much. I'm really happy to be with you guys. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, so I, I think the first place to start, Fadi, if it's okay with you, is where you're calling from. You're calling from Bethlehem. Yep, I'm calling from the middle of the old city of Bethlehem. So right now we're at where I live, which is which was built by my great 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 grandfather in 1838, um, and I'm so lucky to be here because I am a minute and a half away from the market. I am two three minutes away from where my restaurant is, and and this is for me this is Bethlehem. This is like. You can't be more Bethlehem than this. So I'm curious, for those of us who haven't had the privilege and pleasure to visit Bethlehem, how much was produce and sort of the farm, the quote-unquote farm, a part of your daily life growing up? Bethlehem is is a bit of a funny place because it's a small, I mean, officially it's a city, but in reality it's a small, big village. So we're, we're 60,000 inhabitants in Bethlehem and 200,000 in the whole region of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem per se doesn't have a farming in the city, but farming around the city is extremely essential to the daily life of, of Bethlehem. So my, I mean, I'm just looking at the pictures and I think you've hired a spy to get a picture of my garden that actually <laughs> looks better than this now. So the trees have grown a bit, but <laughs> um, I think this is very typical of Bethlehem. All family homes in Bethlehem had a garden where, I mean, for me, when you say a Palestinian garden, I just think a fig tree, an escadinia tree, a lemon tree, like they're like the quintessentials of any place. And Palestinians in the diaspora, people who have even ended up in refugee camps, have you know there's fabulous stories of people who have arrived in Lebanon in Syria and in, in Jordan in a camp and the first thing they did was plant a fig tree or plant a like this is where the, the the relation with produce is but then for me my experience is comes really from I mean I keep talking about my grandmother's kitchen because that's really where I learned how to cook but also I would spend weekends summer holidays so with my maternal grandmother and grandfather 
And at the time, most farmers around Bethlehem, what they would do is they would come into the city with their produce, go to homes of people they knew would, would be their traditional clients, and then whatever wasn't sold at the homes would end up in the market. Yeah. I'm curious about the food that you grew up eating as a child. And before you answer the question, what I'm interested in is, do you feel like your grandmother, whose kitchen you, you just referred to, was also experimenting and was in a process of exploring what Palestinian food may be? Definitely. But it wasn't only Palestinian. And that's, where, that's why I'm smiling, because I think I my missing hits of experimenting really come from my grandmother. Like I have memories of her trying to do some bizarre jam with things that don't really work and having a whole pot of things just end up not really being what she wanted. And then her transforming them into a pet de fruit and claiming it was good. So we all grandchildren had to just eat it and lump it. But, you know, I, but really, I, I think I'm lucky to have on my paternal side, a family that, moved to Japan, and then in 43, moved to India. My father was born in Bombay, and then they came back to Bethlehem. On my mother's side, my grandfather was born in France and moved back to Bethlehem. And then we have a strong component of an Italian bit of the family. So the kitchen was a bit all of this, like my grandmother's kitchen, my mother's kitchen today, um, and is a bit of all these influences but it's also trying to define Palestinian cuisine because, yeah. because of the seasonality I was describing earlier, I think the, the broad lines of what Palestinian cuisine are is the sea. I mean, when people ask me what is Palestinian cuisine, I just say it's the Palestinian terroir because that's really, it's silicon when in season, it's mluchia in season. And, and with your map, uh, now up on the screen, it makes it even more complicated. So okay, yeah. this this map is not realistic. Guys, yeah. imagine all of this and like try and imagine 8% of this because that's where we are allowed to move. So yeah. here, I'll just take one example, Nikki, Gaza. My uncle's wife is from Gaza. Last time I was in Gaza was in 1987. Yeah. So fish ended up not being anymore part of Bethlehem cuisine. But when I was a kid, Gaza Yafa were the sources of a fish, and that's where we'd get them. Um, with the construction of the segregation wall, with life being more limited by occupation, all of that just becomes non-realistic. I mean, if I look at my kitchen at the restaurant, um, mm -hmm. when I get apprentices or, or people in the team that are younger, they can't even visualize what it looks like. So yeah. a dish which is very present in Palestinian cuisine, Sayyadiyat Samak, you tell anybody in Bethlehem, in Nablus, and they have no idea what a Sayyadiyat Samak is. And if they do, yeah. it's done with a frozen filet of fish, which is quite disgusting. So it's not, it's not a real Sayyadiyat. Like it, it, yeah. the reality of this occupation has changed the geography of produce. Um, but the other reason why I wanted to talk about this was I love um, thinking about sort of Palestinian cuisine with a capital P, right? As if it is a single thing. And your series, Teta's Kitchen, which I highly recommend everybody explore, um, does an amazing job of breaking this down and looking at a, each different city um, and picking, a, picking a, a dish that may be representative of the city. So 
just to go through some of them, and then I want to ask you about them. So things like Kusa uh, Mahshi, Wara'anab, things like Mlkhiyya, things like Amsakhan, Kanef, you look at, a, at a, a bunch of different things. But in your mind, what is the first sort of like quintessential dish of the Palestine that you grew up in? There is no single dish. For me, it's mansaf, because mansaf for me means a lot. And it's like these memories of celebrations in the family where we had mansaf. But it's also, and again, it's my grandmother, it's a roasted lamb where nobody would want to touch the head of the lamb except my grandmother and I. And we'd be devouring the cheeks while everybody looks at us like, oh, you're savages. But there's no like one single plate, but each plate has a story. So the first slide you showed yeah. of Bethlehem's Kusa Wara'inab. Why is it Bethlehem? It's because prior to, to 48, the majority of citizens in Bethlehem were of Christian faith. And Wara'inab was your Sunday dish. Because yeah. You would do it in the morning, put it on the fire, go to church, and when you come back, it's ready. Um, so for me, that was the association with Bethlehem. Um, I was curious, none of the episodes focus on part of the cold mezze, or like a, a salad, or a fatouche, or a tabbouleh. It was a deliberate choice for, for many reasons. One of the reasons is, traditionally in, in Palestine, when you went out to a restaurant, that's where you had mezze and grilled meats. Mm-hmm. And, and prior to this, I'm going to try staying polite and, and say just the invasion of, of what people claim is international cuisine. The only restaurant, like the emblematic restaurants in Palestine, were the places that were known for their mezzas and their grilled meats, chicken, mm. and so forth. Um, and all of the rest, the tabiq, was really homemade. Um, and when I started the thinking process of, of fauda and, and modernizing Palestinian cuisine, it's how do I actually get the flavors of the tabikh into a gourmet setting onto a plate, basically, because all of these dishes are communal dishes. And, and for me, it was very important to go back to the source. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was also exploring, I mean, you're showing the mluchiyah, for example. Mluchiyah is, I think, one of the most controversial dishes across the Middle East in general. And That's in true. Europe. Um, for the ones that are not Mulukhiya fans, it's a dish you either hate or love, but then when you love it, it's a very ritualistic dish. Do you have onions and vinegar? Do you have onions yeah. and lemon? Do you have onions, garlic, and chili? Do you have fresh lemon on it? Do you have breadcrumbs on it or not? And, and so forth. And I think we all inherited this in our homes and in different places. Do, do you use kuzubara or not? Do you use coriander or not? Do you use yeah. it with, with rice or with bread? And, and that is really something that, that for me is, is this like fantastic dish. I've never talked to anybody about mukhiya without getting people to like look at me with big eyes and be like, oh, it's disgusting. Or, oh, I love it. You know, my mother does it. Like it's either yeah. or, but then there's also one thing which, which brings us back to the diversity of this region. Mukhiya was known in English as Jews Malo. And why is that? It's because the Jewish community from Alexandria, Egypt, when they went off to um, Europe, that's one of the dishes they cooked. So the Tunisian Jewish community cooks Mulukhiyah, just like the other Tunisians. And I thought like Mulukhiyah is really one of the ones, 
and if you actually look at my Instagram, I do tend to post some Rukhiyah dish every few days, just to yeah. try and like tease people and see, okay. My joke about Rukhiyah is, it's not that if you, you either love it or hate it. It's, you either love the one you're having, and if you hate the one you're having, just try one of the many other ones until you figure out the, the version that you like. Because <laughs> I actually grew up hating my mom. Exactly. And I, I, thought, I thought, oh, I hate this dish. And then I went over to a friend's house. And I had his mom and I was like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, about the impetus for starting Fauda. Fauda, Fauda for a simple reason. I don't have a menu in Fauda. I go to the market. What the farmers have that day dictates my menu and it's a set menu. Where we're located, it's a Hosh Sirian guest house. It was an old building that was renovated by the Italian government in support of Bethlehem municipality. And they were looking for somebody to manage it. And I ended up taking over the place. Um, and I thought, you know, I've always wanted to do something with my, my attempts to modernize Palestinian food. And this is the most fantastic location. And I started like this um, because that was really important for me is to really get Bethlehem on the food map. And I think we were quite lucky over the five and a half, six years of operations where we got people's attention about you know, what we were dishing up in our plates. And, and I think that was, I mean, I, I would ever, ever be grateful for that opportunity. I'm curious over the time, at both from when you were a child to when you started the restaurant, have you seen um, differences or trends in the, the quality of the produce or the types of produce that are even available when you sit down because of maybe uh, environmental changes, um, but also obviously changes in water supply because of the occupation, changes in um, movement? Are there, are there structural things that you're seeing um, on a day-to-day -day basis when you sit down with her? Do you know what Zarur is? Yeah. Zarur is that little uh, fruit that we use to do jam. And zarur would be in, in season. Now is the zarur season. You'd find zarur all over Palestine. Yeah. This year, I am hunting for zarur. There's, no, there's none. Why? Because of the control of water by occupation. Because we as Palestinians have also become more and more detached. You know, a lot of the farming society that I knew when I was young have moved to more of an urban professional class. And, and that has changed the relation. I'll take one example. Again, you're keeping Ibn Abir in front of me, so I'll take Ibn Abir as an example. Yeah. She comes from a village called Artas, south of Bethlehem, that was historically known to be a bit the, the lush garden of Bethlehem. Um, biblically, if we take the biblical text as a historic text, that's where Solomon wrote the Song of Songs. So the only text in the Bible that is not religious. In the Valley of Ertaz, you have every family from the village has a plot of land and they have all wells of water that are fed from the water coming up from the little hill behind it. Today, that hill has a settlement on it. The water doesn't come down anymore because it's being yeah. taken by these receptors. But also all the people in the village that used to be farmers, most of them, are working as construction workers in Israel. Today, you have more and more farming land being used for export. And we're getting things like tarragon being planted in the north of the West Bank 
while in Palestinian cuisine we don't really use the argon. Um, so th there's a lot, there's a bit of that shift towards export. Again, in that picture, if you look at on the right of Nabil, there's a cardboard box in red, mm -hmm. and that's a vegetable box with Hebrew written on it. So Nabil's products are not Israeli, but she uses the cartons that she finds around to put her produce. Yeah. And those boxes are very often given to Palestinian farmers by an Israeli um, company buying their produce. So they're already packed into their boxes or vice versa, products coming from, from Israel into, into the West Bank markets. Okay, I want to jump to the single ingredient. So part of the Matbakh series, we've asked every single guest to choose either a single ingredient, um, uh, recipe, pro, uh, technique, or dish. And for yours, you chose some map. And so tell us a little bit about why you chose this ingredient and why um, you, you've been thinking about it. Look, I, I'm so obsessed with some map. I think sumat is the most underrated spice in, in general in Arab cuisine. Sumat for me is really the, the... If I had to choose one spice that says Palestine, I would choose sumat and not za'atar, even though za'atar is much more used. But I think sumat has this like finesse of... It's a very... If, if you've cooked with sumat, um, Sumet is a very fine spice. It's not overpowering. It's not chili. It's not allspice. It's not nutmeg that gives you a wham. It, but delicate and that tanginess that, that people sometimes say, oh, but I, I feel um, something that is lemony. It's not lemony. It's acidity um, of sumet, which is very particular. Okay, let's do a quick round of Q and A, uh, quick Q and A's, and then we're going to open up to the the chat. Okay. So, what are you reading or watching right now? I'm reading Bread Massimo Bottura's book. I am watching Refettorio's again, Massimo. It's it's just because we, we it's something that is very dear to my heart right now. Food waste. I think this pandemic has taught us a lot about food waste. And it's time we, we start really working on food waste. I agree. Okay, who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? I, I studied hotel management in a school called the Institut Vatel in Paris. Vatel was the cook of the of Fouquet, the intendant of the king. And on an evening where the king was supposed to come and have dinner, they found him in the kitchen. The guy stabbed himself in the heart because the fish delivery was late and he couldn't imagine not serving fish to the king. I would love shadowing Vettel for a day before he stops himself. <laughs> what is your guilty pleasure uh, midnight food choice? Can I have more than one choice? Yeah, sure. Cold malfouf from the fridge. Me too, heck. heck. Exactly, with a bit of lemon, extra lemon on it. Um, <laughs> Kaik, so the, the sesame bread with prosciutto and butter. Oh, wow. Okay, what dish reminds you most of home? My mother's mansa. My grandmother's clementine givrée. And eggs fried in samna with sumna. Okay, let's open it up to Q&A. Um, we have 
The first one, it seems like Martin's not here. The first one will be from Hannah. Um, okay, her question is, um, I've always wondered this, has there ever been a history of pork dishes within the Christian Palestinian community? I live in Italy now. Completely appreciate your Italian-Palestinian fusion dishes. I now lazily make msachan using focaccia. Don't hate me. <laughs> okay. Uh, Hannah, first, pork has always been present in Palestine, um, not only eaten by the Christian community. Um, so Sunday, for a lot of people, means a pork barbecue. And recently I, I did... Um, I. I got some sausages from my pork butcher they're very palestinian like all the spices in those sausages is palestinian um and that's something like you smell you walk around bejala bethlehem bethlehem on a sunday and you smell that like sausage being grilled um so yes it's very present at my restaurant part of my christmas menu is uh Long, slow roasted leg uh, of pork, ham with local spice, with aniseed, with za'atar, um, and we're in the service industry. I've never asked somebody what their faith is when they're coming into a restaurant. The, the answer is there for you, I think. Perfect. Okay, so. Uh, two questions that they asked me to read. So one is from Tanya, just really quickly. Who was the author of that book, um, La Cuisine Libanais? George Reyes. George Reyes. The second one is the, the Martin one that he skipped, and I'm going to be a little more specific. His question was, what is the major difference between Palestinian cuisine and Middle Eastern cuisine more uh, broadly? I'm going to be a little more specific. If you were to identify what is uh, most different about, uh, like, cuisine from Gaza to Egyptian cuisine and cuisine from the north of Palestine to Lebanese cuisine, like the neighboring countries, what are sort of some of the switches, if any? Martin, it's a bit like we share a lot in common with our neighboring countries, definitely. Um, the Lebanese kitchen, the Palestinian kitchen, the all, all of the region has had two commonalities. One is the shared terroir and the produce, but also we were ruled for 400 years by the Ottomans. And that history of an empire means food traveled within the empire. And very often, um, I've had a, past, a really interesting discussion with a Japanese food writer called Ryoko Segushiki, and we compared a bit the Ottoman cuisine to the uh, Japanese cuisine and the whole idea of an empire where even within regional diversities in Japan, the food went into the emperor's kitchen and then was redeveloped. You know, ma'luba, for example, which is a very Palestinian dish. The story is that the name ma'luba was given to, to the dish by an Ottoman uh, official because he had tasted that dish in a Palestinian village and then he came back a year later and wanted that same dish, but he couldn't remember what it is. So he described it and said, Me'lubas, it's the thing you flip over, and the name stuck. <laughs> but, but our cuisine, how is it different? <sighs> we don't do kushari, like the Egyptians. And even in Gaza, we don't do kushari. But then Gaza does knefa, which is called knefa arabiya, that has no cheese in it. In Bethlehem, we do knefa 
that also has no cheese, but it's very different. Mm. So the one the one in Gaza has a lot of nuts, um, and it looks like like it's a flat um, semolina sweet. The one in Bethlehem are vermicelli that are cooked with they're cooked on steam. There is some cinnamon on them, walnuts, and syrup. And then um, in Nablus, there's the knafe and nablusia with the yeah. cheese. So, so these are the differences, and they can become like dish specific. Yeah. Um, we talked about mluchia earlier. I don't think any Lebanese family would do mluchia like we do it here, and they just look at us like, "What? You you use non-fresh mluchia leaves, not whole?" You know, so that these are the differences. Really. <laughs> I think we have time for one last uh, question. Adil, do you want to ask your question? Yes. Hi, Mikey. Hi, Fadi. Hi. Uh, I wanted to ask you specifically about uh, heirloom indigenous plants and uh, fruits and varieties of fruits and vegetables that are indigenous to Palestine. How can people like yourself help preserve these heirloom varieties and help farmers continue to grow them? With farmers, my philosophy is based on two things. One, I never pre-order produce. Well, and we're, I'm saying farmers, but it's farmers and foragers. Um, I don't say I need for tomorrow 100 kilos of whatever, zatar. Um, it's to me, and as I was saying earlier, without the imnabils of Palestine, we wouldn't exist as chefs. Um, it's for me to adapt and not the other way around. I think part of why, in a lot of countries, not only Palestine, heirloom um, vegetables, fruits, and, and naturally foraged uh, herbs, and, and, and things like akuv and, and so forth, have have disappeared, um, or being are threatened of disappearing, is because they were driven to an excessive usage of them. Um, we can preserve as chefs by actually being respectful of that nature, um, first of all, because if not, at the end, we'll end up without Zatar in Palestine, we'll end up without Sunnah, and we'll end up, like now we're seeing, without Zarur. Um, the other thing is awareness, and, and that's something we lack um, in Palestine, is a system to help us. For example, if I take, the one I know the best is the French system, which is the, I would say, the appellation, the origin appellation, we don't have a system like this. So basically, if, even if we look at olives, the native indigenous olives and the what we call in, in general Arabic Zetun Rumi, because they were planted by the Romans, that there's nothing in terms of regulation to protect them, preserve them. Um, and that also applies. So we, we start from the Hirlum. Uh, vegetables and, and, and fruits, but then we go off to finished products. It's a whole chain, it's a whole way of thinking that has to go across all the chain. And we need to be able to contribute to that as, as chefs, of course. Great. Um, thank you for the last question. Fadi, this has been a huge pleasure. Um, my, my, my heart is full and my mouth is watering. Uh, mm -hmm. So I have, I have you to blame for that. Um, this was a lot of fun. Thank you to everyone who joined the talk. Um, I think this is a, a fantastic start to um, ongoing conversation. I hope we can continue that conversation in the future.
Okay, everybody, take care. Enjoy your night or day, wherever you are. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. <laughs>